Yeah. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was 9-11 uh, was itself. Welcome. This is the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, waging the all-out struggle for truth right here on Revolution.Radio. The greatest of free speech networks every Friday evening. Go to revolution.radio to listen to this show and, of course, to support this great network. My website, by the way, is kevinbarrett.substack.com, or you can just go to truthjihad.com and find your way to my Substack and all of the other rubrics where I post my work. Well, today we have a, an incendiary show as usual. The second hour will be a discussion about the upcoming midterm elections. Rolf Lindgren, otherwise known as Rolf Stradamus, will be predicting the outcomes. And we all know that Rolf is eagerly awaiting the return of Trump. So we'll see how likely that is. And I bet he'll be predicting a red tsunami. But I hate to give that away. I'll let him come on in an hour and tell you that himself. And then Alan Stevo, the author of Face Masks in One Lesson, will discuss how you can run for office and win, even if you have the kinds of non-mainstream ideas that we talk about on this show. And there are some non-mainstream people saying outside the mainstream box things who do get elected. Donald Trump was one and, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, there are probably a few others. So if you want to know how to do that, maybe we can actually... Uh, Move the chains a little bit through the electoral system if you listen to Alan Stevo in the second hour. All right, let's get on to the first hour. Here is actually something new on the 9-11 truth front. I don't do 9-11 stuff every week because, well, there isn't really a lot of brand new material on this false flag of the century. It's kind of been solved. David Ray Griffin solved half of it back in 2004 with the new Pearl Harbor and I would say that people like Christopher Bolin uh, solved the other half, uh, Lauren Guyanot and so on. Uh, so we, we kind of have a pretty good sense of, of what went down with 9-11. However, not so many people have gotten the larger historical context involving a series of possible Israeli false flags that essentially created the whole story of the so-called war on terror out of whole cloth after suspected high 9-11 perp. Benjamin Netanyahu convened the JCIT, the Jerusalem Conference on International Terrorism, back in 1979. So the, what we're talking about in this first hour with Bruce Baird will sort of break some new ground. And in particular, by pointing out that Russia's 9-11, those uh, horrific apartment bombings of September 1999, fit the pattern of Israeli mini-nuke false flags. So this is uh, fresh meat for the 9-11 truth movement. And it's great to bring on Bruce Baird. He's a retired engineer, professor, and a uh, good guy. Met him at the Bay Area Film Festival, I think a couple of times. 
And, uh, well, here he is to tell us about this new take on the so-called War on Terror. So, hey, uh, welcome, Bruce. How are you doing? Hi, Kevin. How are you doing? Yeah, it's great to have you. And uh, you're coming through loud and clear. So it's kind of uh, counter-narrative here in a lot of ways what you're saying, because we hear quite a lot from both mainstream and uh, alternative sources that the Russian apartment bombings, otherwise known as Russia's 9-11, were a Putin false flag. It inaugurated a state of emergency to bring Putin into power, and he was able to put an end to the Yeltsin era of drunken incompetence and build, rebuild a strong centralized Russian state on the back of these apartment bombings. Uh, of course, he then you know, directed this uh, horrific war in Chechnya. So the anti-Russia side of the mainstream actually kind of likes that story. They like it a lot better than they like the uh, 9-11 story. And, uh, and a lot of folks in the 9-11 truth community also suspect that Putin, or at least some hardliners in the KGB who wanted a, a uh, strong state, might have been behind that. But you're arguing now in the 71-tweet Twitter thread that it could have actually been the Israelis. So tell us about that, why, uh, why you think that, why they would benefit. Well, uh, first, I just want to add it uh, to you that I looked back at all the tweets I could find going back to 2013 to see how they responded to uh, or how they used this idea, this Russian 9-11 and Putin pulled the false flag. And I found unanimous uh, on Twitter, which usually people are divided on Twitter, unanimous opinion that it was Putin pulling a false flag back in September 1999. And that's what got me. It's like, whoa, unanimous? It's like nobody's questioning. And of course, in the last year, especially, people have used it to accuse Putin of doing everything, saying he pulled a false flag back in September 1999. He always pulls false flags. So everything he accuses Ukraine of doing or planning to do, it's really Putin pulling a false flag. And I said, OK, that's pretty naive, especially since a long time ago, actually, like, I think back in December 2018, I came across Dmitry Kalasov's book, The 9-11 Anthology, and he has a little section in there that he talks about all of these false flags, uh, truck bombs, and, uh, and he, he talked about Volgodonsk, which was this big explosion they had in this town like 600 miles south of Moscow uh, that left this big crater. And he said uh, that was evidence that this um, that this was a nuclear explosion. It wasn't like they said it wasn't the uh, a truck bomb out in front. It could only have been caused by a nuclear bomb, a mini nuke or micro nuke. Actually, he said it was somewhere between 100 and 300 tons. So that's a pretty big micro nuke. But uh, he didn't say it was Israel that was behind it. He, he kept referring to the quote unquote so-called good guys. I think he 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 didn't really go after Israel. He he tended to want to think of some kind of Freemasons, like the people behind the scenes who are doing these things. And uh, but it definitely it wasn't Putin. It was the good guys who had pulled this false flag to blame it on the Chechen Muslims to then kick off this uh, second Chechen war, which actually had kind of started before uh, to some degree. But uh, I knew that way back when. And there are people always talking about now that this was Putin's false flag. And I said, uh, no, it can't be just simply that. It's got to be uh, something more than that, uh, because I didn't think that they would have nuked this apartment building back in September 1999. So uh, I had already, in the meantime, done a lot of research on um, 
mysterious truck bombings, supposed truck bombings, terrorist truck bombings that left large craters, disproportionate craters. And I had done a lot of research going back wherever I could find information on uh, explosive cratering, where people, you know, military people or academic people have experimented with uh, uh, explosives to blast craters and above ground craters, below ground craters, nuclear craters, non-nuclear craters, uh, everything. And I collected a lot of information to get to the um, understanding of what causes craters. And in fact, how you can like forensically take information uh, of dimensions of a crater in the ground and figure out what kind of explosive, how big explosive, where the explosive would have been placed. And so I've been like just using Excel, you know, to plot all this data that I collected, which I think goes beyond anything that I've seen uh, in any report or in terms of the number of, of uh, tests that I use. Wow. And I a, also, crater, a crater spreadsheet. I do. It's not that many. Maybe it's, um, you know, 50 or whatever tests that they've done that actually would fall into the category of being able to analyze a crater. But especially things that are slightly below the ground or slightly above the ground. Those are the critical things because truck bombs, by their very nature, are above ground. And generally, you know, they have to be, you know, the truck bed is three to four feet high, you know, in a normal type of like a truck. And the, the explosives, you know, if they're high explosives like TNT or ANFO or whatever are going to be on top of that. And uh, I discovered through all these studies uh, that um, – and actually, I knew this before from the work of Dmitry Kalasov and also Joe Viles and other people who had said that, you know, truck bombs like this do not blast craters. And I was able to confirm that with all of my analysis that no, truck bombs like this do not blast craters. They compress the ground somewhat underneath it, but they don't blast a crater that's, say, six foot deep or eight foot deep or whatever. They just can't do that. And all these terrorist explosives, you know, terrorist incidents are blamed on truck bombs. They always left nice big craters. They blasted them. And so I had to question every one of them. And so I started. It's, it's funny. It's always Muslims responsible for the truck bombs. It seems almost always. Oh uh, yeah. Oh yeah. City was well, not, I also session. studied the in Britain in the 1990s where they blamed them on the IRA. I did a whole thread on, on those bombs. There's like four major bombs in uh, Manchester and London. And I said, yeah, there's no way. The, and the, officially the IRA was to blame, but they said there's no way the IRA did that. Um, the, now, the, you know, so I, I was able to uh, study a bunch of different incidents that happened and, and say, yeah, no, these were not truck bombs. But I didn't really have a sense of, you know, or I didn't have information per se on like who did that. Um, and I, although Joe Viles um he was the one who really impressed me i i found uh, he was an australian online investigator who died back in 2005 but he started putting these online articles back in 1990 he looked at the british bombs in 1990 and he suspected those were mini nukes back then i said whoa uh he also did a real telling articles on the 2002 bali bombings which he deliberately he, he went into great detail identifying it as the, a Demona micro nuke that this was an Israeli nuke and it was used to uh, as a, a terrorist extortion to force Australia because a lot of the people who were killed in Bali were Australians on vacation there and he said it was used to force Australia to fall in line with Israel's war on terror. And uh, so I said, well, okay, well, that's interesting. Very long article, and now these are not online anymore. These are still his like website but you can find them on archive.org on the wayback machine 
So they haven't been scraped from that yet. And, and so I started tweeting those a lot, saying, well, this is very, very interesting. You never hear about Joe Biles very much. And then in 2004, he did one on the Hariri assassination. And he's doing it like a reporter. He's doing it on this, like within days, you know, of these incidents happening. He's going through all this analysis. I don't know where he's getting the information, but when I try to, would try to analyze it, I had some questions. Some things I would question that he would say, like he knew a little too much, but that I wasn't certain about. But uh, it was like, okay, he's, he's onto something with this. So, uh, and then he died in 2005. <laughs> okay. And, uh, yeah, that was kind of sudden. Why he died. Right at the key moment in the so, you know, as these series of terror attacks, the post 9 11 false flags yes. are, are kind of blossoming. He never and, did 9 11, as far as I know, but. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, you know, he, I don't know who he was or anything about him, except they did these articles and they're very interesting. And I've tweeted them quite a bit with the, the links that they're all on archive.org. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I it, was, it was interesting how it, uh, a whole bunch of these post 9-11 false flags did involve explosions that were highly implausible. That is, they couldn't really be attributed to what the official story tried to attribute them to. Um, of course, the, the destruction of the Twin Towers is a huge example of that. But likewise, in, in Bali, as Joe Viles uh, wrote, also in Madrid and in London, in both of those cases, the uh, bombings could, you know, for instance, in London, the bombs had clearly been placed underneath the carriages because they blasted the metal upward. And the official story was that bombers in back with backpacks had uh, had done it. And and so it was interesting that Joe Viles was doing that. In Are you talking about 6-6? Six, six is that what they call it? Seven, 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 yeah, seven, 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 seven right. two thousand five. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, now I was I was tending to focus on um, bombs or terror, you know, ex explosions that left craters, uh, because to me that was solid type evidence. Even though they have disputes about how big the crater was or and details, but they have photos of it a lot of times. And then somebody went and officially measured it. And sometimes I might not trust those dimensions, or you know, did they know exactly how you're supposed to? measure a crater because you're supposed to measure them not from the top of the the lip uh the rim but from the, the depth and the diameter from the surface the original surface level so sometimes there's questions like that but i you know there is some uh, a lot of play in the data it's not you know it's like perfect fits to a lot of the correlations i was coming up with but it's pretty close to be able to take the especially would start with the uh, the ratio of the crater diameter they call it the apparent crater diameter and the apparent crater depth and the ratio of diameter to depth is a pretty good tool to kind of pinpoint, uh, pinpoint you know, what, you know, um, how, uh, whether there's an above ground or below ground uh, explosion. And then from there, you can kind of get a sense of how big the bomb would be. And, uh, and uh, you know, for a lot of, a lot of incidents, like these, um, these ones that Joe Viles uh, studied and, you know, that I was coming up with pretty much the same kind of, uh, explosion at the same kind. We're talking about shallowly buried micronukes, like around uh, 10 to 20 uh, tons of TNT equivalent. In other words, they would have a blast effect, a cratering effect equivalent to 10 to 20 tons of TNT. But it's a very small device. It may be like 50 pounds, and it, it can fit right on the surface of the street. And uh, it's, it's underground. It's a few inches, you know, it's a foot or whatever. Uh, vials and, and Kalasov said it were placed in crater, I mean, in sewer pipes, which it might be, uh, you know, I mean, it, that's a re that's reasonable uh, way maybe that worked. But uh, there was also some talk of people using uh, that there was uh, people who were doing road work, like in the 
on the uh, Hariri assassination, the, some of the locals said there were some people who had been doing road work on that same spot, you know, just days before. So maybe they did that and could plant these bombs under the street where something is supposed to happen later on. Like kill uh, Hariri and also blast a big chunk of, you know, downtown Beirut. You know, let, let's let's remind the listeners about the political circumstances there. Uh, when Hariri was murdered, Rafiq Hariri, the uh, famous uh, Lebanese leader, that essentially was blamed on Syria, and it was used as an excuse to try to force Syria out of Lebanon. And Syria had sort of moved into Lebanon uh, to uh, after Israel's kind of failed war on, on Lebanon went south, and then Syria ended up uh, having a lot of influence in Lebanon. The Israelis didn't like that. So the Israelis uh, have been wanting to overthrow the Assad-related governments in Syria for forever. And this uh, killing of Hariri, blamed on Syria, was used to force Syria out of Lebanon. And clearly the fix was in the international media, and we all knew who controls that, and the big institutions all sort of united to try to point the finger at Syria, even though the evidence was highly dubious. So that would be perfectly logical that it would be a, an Israeli false flag. Well, and all the ones uh, in Beirut, I mean, either it was Hezbollah or Iraq or Syria. And uh, yeah, they, those are the official explanations are always focused on them. And and I could I could easily with my analysis rule out that they would have access to these kind of micronews because the, one of the most telling things I found when in studying was that they never left any radioactive, you know, radioactivity. They, there's no reports ever. Now people say, Oh, how could it be a nuke? If it was, there was no radioactivity ever reported, ever reported in any of these incidents, except there was some suspicions, maybe the 1983, the Marine barracks bombing, you know, people said there's something uh, uh, about that or, um, but uh, it's, you know, it's like ex based on physics, you know, and all the empirical analysis we can have of uh, basic laws of physics that we know that the official story can't be right. And that that kind of required it would require a much, much larger explosive uh, yield. I mean, we're talking about 10, 20 tons of it underground. That can't be high explosive. It can't be non-nuclear. It has to be nuclear just by that. But yet. They never left any non any nuclear signature of like radioactivity, so most people would dismiss it. But one of the things that I also did in my research, not in this thread, but in many other threads that I've done, is um, explore these ideas of these clean nukes. And this is uh, what Viles also talked about. He called them stealth nukes, uh, and he went into some detail talking about how Israel had developed these. At, at the Mona, these stealth nukes that would not leave any measurable signature or like a radioactivity. And that's the kind of stuff that I do disagree with him about. I, some of that seems like it might be misinformed. But I went through and I studied most of the research that's publishable. I mean, it's been published was in the United States, especially at uh, Lawrence Livermore. And they published some stuff. And the New York Times published this. And the Washington Post talked about it back in the 70s of doing these bombs. They called them minimum residual radioactivity or radiation bombs or reduced radi residual radiation bombs. The residual radiation is what is left after uh, an explosion after like the first, you know, few microseconds or whatever, they leave this radiation in the ground and any of the bomb parts that are radiated and they can have long, long half-lives and it's quite measurable with a regular Geiger counter, you can measure them. But, 
the uh, they were designing these bombs in the 70s, actually going back into the 60s, designing these bombs uh, that would be called clean nukes to fight the Cold War. The idea was uh, you're fighting a war in Eastern Europe, and uh, Germany doesn't want you, you know, all these nukes are on German soil. They don't want you nuking Germany to fight the Soviets. So they started trying to develop these uh, clean nukes that wouldn't do that. Also, there was a lot of interest in blasting craters for peaceful purposes, construction purposes, like the canals and ports and uh, highways. And uh, they maybe, maybe even demolitions of skyscrapers. Uh, yeah, well, um, there's some talk about that, <laughs> I think. Yeah, that's what I think uh, Dmitry Kalasov talked a lot about that. These uh, required plan to be able to take down a tower, you know, some t- tall skyscraper like the Sears building in Chicago or the Twin Towers. And uh, I don't know about that. That's the kind of thing that I'm, I, I don't know. But uh, it's certainly that they somebody I could conceive somebody have actually you know, thought of that. You know, that would be a, per- a good use for that, they might think. But the problem was is that they always left <laughs> – horrible problems with radiation, uh, you know, and they eventually abandoned all those uh, uh, plans to uh, use them for peaceful purposes. So, but still they developed them. And, um, and so the the knowledge is out there. And uh, a lot of it was focused on what was called the neutron bomb. These are called third generation nukes. And the first one, the one that got a lot of attention was the neutron bomb which the idea was that you could tailor the output of a, of a nuclear bomb to, to produce certain types of output. Not, you would still have a huge blast, whatever you did, but you didn't have to have the radiation. You could, um, the neutron bomb would just produce neutrons, which could cause problems. But if it detonated high in the sky, uh, these fast neutrons would kill the people and wouldn't leave much residual radioactivity in the ground. And, you know, and would leave the buildings intact. And leave the buildings intact. So that was the, the point wasn't that wasn't really the issue for him. The idea was you wouldn't have this residual radiation. So you could go in there. These people are going to die a horrible death. It might take a couple of days because fast neutrons are just going to go through them. And and so that was the idea. But tailored nukes, third generation nukes. And they just kept working on it. What can we do? We can make it do this. We can make it do that. And they'd publish this information and get you know, reprinted in big papers. And one of them was clean nukes, was minimum residual radiation nukes. And uh, and Lawrence Livermore, back in 1979, in their official in their official magazine, said, "We've done it. We've made it." And there was you know quite a bit of talk about that in the 80s, even too. And then it sort of disappeared. Yeah, yeah and, other- and that, that leads to the question, what, what do you think about the debate in the 9-11 truth movement around this? The Journal of 9-11 Studies published a couple of articles debunking the theory that mini nukes could have been involved in the demolition of the Twin Towers. And the main line of argument in those articles, I believe one was by Stephen Jones, uh, a, a physicist and, who is well aware of nuclear issues. And he, he argued, as I recall, that the slam dunk argument against the use of nuclear uh, demolition on the Twin Towers was that there wasn't notable radiation. You know, there was no, there was not nearly enough radiation around that there would have had to have been otherwise. And that entire line of argument seemed to rest on the premise that there's no such thing as these uh, reduced radiation type uh, bombs. So. And those on the other side have argued that people like Stephen Jones must have been arguing in bad faith because they must know full well that such uh, technology has been around since the 70s. So what's your take on that? Uh, 
Well, I've tweeted quite a lot about Stephen Jones. I've analyzed the heck out of everything he's ever said. All this, stuff. so um, I, I've, I'm on the come down on the side of the people that yeah, you know, I wouldn't trust a single thing he said. Um, and unfortunately, all those people, the 9/11 uh, Truth Movement, especially a 9/11 Truth, the Arkansas Center Engineer, which I'm a I'm one of the signers. I was an engineer in my first career. I have a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering, so I signed it. That was my first foray into 9-11 truth. Was, hey, I'm going to sign this thing. And uh, But the more I dug into it, the more I realized uh, they're not asking the right questions. I kept asking too many questions. That was my problem as, a, as an engineer and also as a historian. I, I keep asking questions and questions. And so I've written a lot of tweets um, that have challenged almost everything. I challenged the whole nanothermite thing. I just, you know... I want them come at me, come at me, you know, argue what I'm saying. So I have, it's like, even with this Russian uh, 9-11 thread, I tend to come up with explanations that neither side <laughs> of the debates likes very much. So, mm-hmm. you know, neither the, the official narrative, you know, and the debunkers of the, these people challenging them. I tend to like look at the evidence and come up with something that's contrary to both of them. But the 9-11 uh, is so complex. I mean, I've tackled parts of it. I, I, I you know, nine, the a 9 truth, they focus just on the world, you know, tower one and two and seven. And I, you know, I did a whole thread on world trade center six. If you just look at world trade center six, which is this very strange thing with these two cylindrical holes right through the middle of it and you know you yeah, couldn't even cookie cutter okay yeah. Yeah. yeah well i did a whole thread on it and i came up with a very different explanation and i thread it i actually i was looking for something what could possibly it wasn't just they weren't perfect cylindricals they were scalloped they were like yeah so well that looks like something taking out you know little circles and coming together and the whole thing i mean and i found this i think cbs went down underground there uh, and we had these cameras and they were looking at stuff down below. I said, look at that. You know, what's going on with it? I mean, people talk about those uh, beams, you know, the um, the columns that were cut. You know, show pictures of it. And people say, oh, those those were after that was part of the demolition to cut those beams. like at a 45 degree angle to remove. Well, CBS had a documentary where he turned down underneath World Trade Center six and they're showing one of those columns cut like that and it's like, whoa, okay. I've never seen that like underground, you know, and all kind of weird stuff that was happening down in, in the the basement of that building. So, but, but would people pay attention to that? No, <laughs> you know, that's world trade center six. We don't care about world trade centers. Well, you know, if you want to explain what happened on nine 11, you can't focus on just this, 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 you got to try to explain the whole thing. So that's why. Well, yeah, I, isn't, it, isn't it interesting? The, the, every single building with a WTC prefix was yeah. totaled, you know, right. massively totaled, and they appear to basically all have been bombed or something. Some high energy bomb like device utterly destroyed them. And some, uh, all of the non WTC prefix buildings, some of which were much closer to the towers than some of the WTC buildings, like seven. So these, these non WTC buildings, not one of them was totaled. So something just cleanly, utterly, destroyed all of the World Trade Center and very cleanly avoided uh, causing uh, serious damage to anything else. That's pretty strange. Yeah, I like the um, I have my uh, pin tweet that I have on my uh, on my uh, Twitter account that has uh, a picture of like the entire World Trade Center complex, the destruction of it. Like you look at it like, oh, my God, this thing is huge. And uh, 
and it just says, you know, that's what you have to explain. <laughs> Not how did this this building come down at this free fall speed and that one comes down like that. Like what caused, you know, two planes caused all of this? <laughs> you know, I mean, it just boggles the mind. What did it? You know, I'm sure it was nuclear. Just the amount of energy that it required would involve nuclear energy. And I think many there are these people, you know, like Heinz Palm. I think you've had him on your show. Yeah, before. yeah. Heinz Palm. I mean, you know, they've they've you know proven beyond that kind of question that nuclear energy was involved, but how it was used. That's where you know I I still am like questioning all the explanations, including Heinz Palmer's explanation. I was like, um, uh, I tended to actually when I started working on these um, these truck bomb supposed truck bomb craters, and also. Recently, well, two years ago, I did this whole long thread. Actually, I've done multiple threads on the 2020, the August 2020 Beirut blast. I've done a lot of stuff on that. And it's like, that's a lot simpler. You try to explain that. If people will listen to you, challenge the official story of that and support, you know, research into that so they can just blast through those kind of, uh, you know, incidents, then maybe you could start looking at, you know, 9-11, because 9-11 is just so complex, what's going on there. Uh, mm-hmm. But people won't even, I mean, I, I tweeted this uh, this thread, and I've done, I said, like, every year on the anniversary of uh, the August 2020 blast, I do another long thread on it, getting deeper, more detailed. And uh, that back in 20, I mean, I did it, I think I tweeted it, like, just a couple of days after um, the incident. Uh, August, you know, it was August 9th. August 4th was the, was the explosion, and about five days later, I'm let this tweet, which is my pinned tweet, has a picture of the this crater that's right next to where the silos are, and you can see how big, and I, and I just analyzed the hell out of that crater and left in the port of Beirut, but it's right next to my the pinned tweet, it's right next to the blast of the, of the World Trade Center. I said, you know, if you believe that two jet planes did that, then you'll believe that 27 or 50 tons of ammonium nitrate fertilizer did that. And I like that. It's got like it's got like over three thousand likes and two thousand tweets, uh, retweets, and and uh, but nobody in alternative media, nobody, nobody that I would even you know seriously look at that. You know, they people like that they tweet, tweet, but like nobody has pursued that at all. I'm the only one I know of that pursues. And of course, Veterans Today covered this extensively and was claiming it was an Israeli nuke kind of from the beginning. And uh, people like Dmitry Khalazov and Gordon Duff of Veterans Today, although he's now posting at theintelldrop.com. So now I guess I'm a senior editor at VT for whatever that's worth. But but anyway, Veterans Today has been all over these uh, nuclear uh, Israeli nuclear terrorism stories. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I because I, I, I have had run ins with Gordon Duff. Uh, <laughs> I've had a bit of email chains with him and I just so I, I hope you're not having personal physical run ins with him. No, I, no, I, no, no. I heard he's he a tough guy. But uh, but, he, you know, he, he he has this way of. If you overlap his somewhat slightly, he says, oh, you're saying the same thing I did. So it's like, you know, you can't say anything different than what he's already said. He's already said it before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's not the easiest he guy to He has intel argue. to, you know, to prove it. You just have whatever you have, but that doesn't matter because he has secret intel that proves what he's saying. But the whole thing about a, um, in, in the Beirut thing, the idea of a missile, you know, some kind of missile doing this. And, and I think I've proven beyond, you just can't have a missile do that kind of explosion. This was a very... 
it wasn't a simple it wasn't like a, a missile penetrating the ground and doing and creating this crater and causing a blast this was a, a sophisticated operation that involved placing a very 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 large nuke like something like five kilotons of tnt and this is you know something you know we're talking about uh 500 times as big as those mini nukes that might be used in uh, in in Volgodonsk or whatever, or, or Beirut. This is a huge nuke placed like some hundred, some feet under the ground, very precisely placed. And plus, I believe my most recent research suggests there was a second nuke, a pretty large, not that big, but another good-sized nuke above ground. And that's when you look at the, the last thread I did on this, we'll look at the video evidence of this explosion, which uh, there are some images that people haven't seen, but this is a, this is a very, I call it Frankenstein's monster. If you look up, if you look up my tweet and look up Frankenstein, my call is Frank. It's like two explosions in one. They're like, but it's created this this kind of blast that you just had never seen. It's never been. So, seen. so how, how would they have gotten this big bomb hundreds of feet underground? This is this is well easy enough to do that if you have one of those core drilling machines, you know, in a warehouse. If somebody had access and control of that that site, they could do that. You don't even have to be right above it. You can go at an angle. And I, I used to work in the oil industry, so I know you can drill these holes. And you have these very small little portable drills you can do this with. It doesn't have to be a huge machine to do it. And But precisely placed, placed and um, yeah, you can do that. Um, these these mm-hmm. mini nukes, I mean, even, if, even a five kiloton Nuke is not that big that you can't drill a core down there. It might, I don't think they might not line it. They just go down there with bare soil down into the in the limestone. It's like limestone under the bedrock there, and you could drill it down and place it very precisely. And then I can take this forensic information that I have about craters and you know figure out exactly where they must have put it and how big that bomb must have been. But that, that raises a question of motive. Uh, if you imagine Israel. Going after, let's say, a sort of a, a Hezbollah weapons storehouse or transition point or something like that, if they had the access to be able to drill down under it like that, it makes you wonder, you know, if they would really need to go to such an extreme. Uh, so, in terms of motive for this kind of uh, event, would it be sending a message? Uh, yes. We can hook you, <laughs> I suppose. I think. Uh... This is not. This is the part that I kind of avoid, like in my tweets about who I tend to avoid. Although I did get into it with the Russian, Russian nine eleven. Yeah, but you're a historian as well as an engineer, so you get to talk about that stuff. Well, all right. So I can also just hypothesize. But I and people have suggested uh, to me, you know, who believe that Israel was behind it, suggested reasons for it, like competition for the poor, the Haifa versus Beirut. Uh, but you know, I look at just the evidence that. You see when everybody what we were pinned to, you know, looking at YouTube videos on August 4th, 2020, because a lot of people had phones out there taking videos of this and they're still there. You know, you can look at these videos. But I mean, it was all like it's a show. This thing that I call a Frankenstein monster, but it's this elaborate pyrotechnic display. And. You know, we're shocked and awed by it, like I was. And like, oh, my God, just like on 9-11, shocked and awed by it. But whoever planned 9-11, this was a very deliberate thing. They wanted it to look exactly the way it looked like. These people who do this are very good at what they do. They know exactly what this thing is going to do. They, I mean, maybe they make mistakes, and it's not exactly everything they would have hoped. But they wanted the video cameras to capture exactly what was captured. And they don't – whoever does this doesn't mind if, you know, it 
the explanation that officially is presented makes any sense or they're contradictory all over, which they usually are. They tell one story and then another story until one official story kind of rises. But uh, it is, uh, I think there's one mess. I think who is, well, somebody's done this already. There's maybe it was Kalisov. He talks about, yeah, he talks about one message, the message to the people, right? Which is shock and awe. And then the other message is to the leaders and the true experts and the people who know what the heck it was. It was like, we did this to you. We can do it whenever we want to. <laughs> that kind of, I mean, that's all I imagine. That's yeah. the only thing I can imagine is what they're doing with this. Um, and, you know, in the meantime, you know, you blame it on Hezbollah or because I know I've talked to quite a few Lebanese people via the, you know, interested. They DM'd me, direct messaged me, whatever, as a result of these things. And they never really seemed to be that interested in how it was done or that, um, you know, whether Israel actually was the only state that had the ability to do such a thing. They they didn't really care for that very much because they really wanted to go after those corrupt politicians who've ruled, you know, they're in the hands of Israel. Yeah, that's part of it. Israel is still the great evil, you know, officially there in in Lebanon. It is the, the evil, but they they don't need to know that Israel did this. They much more prefer that it's some corrupt officials who are responsible for those ammonium nitrate sacks being in there. Like, okay. Well, that actually kind of pay, plays into the hands of Israel to get people, uh, you know, blaming their own leaders and uh, not rallying behind their country against Israel. Yeah. But it, it turns it out like those, the Israeli experts, both the technicians and the uh, psyops and media types, have really come a long way since the King David Hotel bombing and since the Lavan affair botched bombing when they tried to bomb American targets in yeah. Egypt and got caught. You know, in, if you read Thomas Suarez's book, State of Terror, which lays out how Israel was created with just this endless series of terror attacks, and it's gone on, you know, ever since then, um, they when they started out, it was pretty primitive. You know, a lot of these yeah. people were not really experts. And it seems like they, they're just so devoted to to terrorism and that's what they are. You know, Israel is basically just terror our us. And they've gotten pretty good now. They're actually, you know, doing these things that are kind of you know, hard to figure out exactly how they did them. And they are, you know, big enough that they do provide the shock and awe. And they've got total control of the Western media to put I mean, their story out there. And, and it's, it's not just Western media. I think it's everywhere around the world. I don't think anybody challenging these stories. Yeah, well, well, but I don't think they need to have control of a lot of the non-Western media to the extent that they control the Western media, because so much of the non-Western media just picks up the story from the Western media. You know, I remember I, I, I was in journalism school in Madison, Wisconsin, 1976, 1981, and John McNally was the professor dealing with the international stuff. And uh, he, he was, yeah, I mean, he wasn't a radical or anything, really, but he was just horrified by the way that the global media, especially in these third world countries, was just lapping up whatever they were getting from the West, that the, the, there was this very centralized, top-down Western control of the global media, uh, and, and not so much because the same you know, oligarchs, these Zionist oligarchs who own the, the Western media, they don't necessarily own all of the media everywhere, although they may have invested in a fair bit of it, but they set the tone. They're, they're, they've got that prestige from that Western media and everybody else seems to sort of just echo it. Yeah, I'm always surprised what things they're allowed to say that question these official narratives. Like, for example, 
I've, you know, always impressed people of the 1967 USS Liberty. You know, you could talk about that. You can see then they say it, Peter. But I've tried to get some of those people to consider what happened in the Marine barracks in 1983, and they won't go there. They're not going to touch that one. Really, you think Israel would do this to you back in 1967, but they wouldn't do that to the Marines in 1983? Okay. They just, you know, it's like you can talk about this. Israel, whoever the powers that be, allows that to be talked about. The Levon affair, they even admitted to it. Yes, we did that. Uh, you know, and they take great pride. I mean, I've met some people, Israelis, that take great pride in some of those early... Well, they, they gave years. medals to the Lafon Affair terrorists uh, in yeah. what, 2005 or so. They they denied it. They said the whole story was a big anti-Semitic uh, canard. And they kept to that for, what, 30, 40 years, uh, 50 years. And then in the early 2000s, they finally confessed and they awarded medals to the surviving terrorists who had tried to blow up American targets in Egypt. And blame the it George on the Bauman, they were heroes. I mean, they took great pride in it. They said, hey, that what we did, it, they actually, I said, I met some Israelis, who, um, this guy who was involved in those. And he said, they, you know, yes, yeah, terrorism, but you know what? <laughs> we're the good guys. It has a way of bouncing back, you know, like at, at some point. I, I think this, you know, you're talking about craters. Well, all of these these craters that the Israelis have created all over the world, it's going to it's going to come back. And, and, you know, Israel is, is going to get cratered itself eventually. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But yeah. uh, um, in terms of the um, the Russian, you know, to go back to what I found out about the Russian uh, uh, 9-11 or whatever, the, the apartment, there are four major apartment blocks that were heavily destroyed or not totally. There are parts of these apartment buildings that were destroyed in the first couple of weeks of September 1999. The one I focused on was in, in Volgodonsk because it was, from all descriptions, it was the biggest blast and also left a, a crater that got a lot of attention, a photograph. And I was able to go in and take my forensic analysis and say, oh, yeah, this was uh, like an 11 ton uh, equivalent, you know, TNT equivalent nuke. And it was buried just like um, half a foot under the ground, under the street surface. And um, I calculated, well, it would have taken like uh, seven tons of, of TNT or not five. I can't remember now exactly how many tons, but I calculated how many tons of TNT it would have taken to do it. And it would have to, it would be impossible to imagine them putting that much TNT into the street there to blow it up. It just, you know, you can't, it won't work. It certainly wouldn't work on the top of a flatbed truck. And it's not going to work buried in the ground. You're not going to get that much TNT in there without people noticing. But this little micro nuke, you know, which might be again a minimum residual radiation, like a clean micro nuke that might weigh only a little less less than 50 pounds, somebody could do this fairly easily, and it would cause a lot more damage than high explosives. It would cause explain all the other things, including people uh, mentioned uh, Kalasov actually. He, he reported he knew two of these guys there who talked to him about it. And he said there was a mush, a perfect mushroom cloud. A fire, this guy was a firefighter who knew what you know, smoke clouds looked like. And this is no, this was like a nuclear type cloud. He saw and this. It was in the, like an hour before sunrise there when it blew in um, September 16th, uh, 1999. And, uh, you know, so they it, it, a lot of what Kalasov was able to learn from people there, confirm what I said. And what he believed, except he thought it was a 100 to 300 uh, ton nuke, a much, much bigger nuke, because CNN slipped through like he likes this. CNN actually on the first day said it was, somebody said it was 100 to 300 tons, and he stuck with that. In fact, he used that number to try to compare that to other places. So his numbers are way high in terms of the size of the bombs he thinks might have been involved in a lot of these 
um, Dugings, uh, you know. Interesting. You know, Dmitry Khalilzov is it's a very uh, interesting guy. You know, he he did uh, finger former Mossad chief Mike Harari right. as uh, bragging at a party. He, according to Khalilzov, uh, former Mossad, legendary former Mossad chief Mike Harari uh, convened a celebratory party shortly after 9-11 in uh, was it Thailand or something? I, and that Dmitry Khalilzov actually was there and witnessed uh, Mike Harari bragging about having participated in pulling off 9-11. So, but I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but the thing about yeah, Dmitry Khalilzov is, is some of the stuff he says uh, strikes me as, as pretty palpably uh, bizarre and, and obviously untrue. Uh, for instance, he claims that on 9/11 the Pentagon was hit with a cruise missile fired from a submarine. Now this is this is what the veterans today's former senior editors also believe or say they believe. And so then that that type of cruise missile uh, is nuclear capable. And theory, what 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 he claims is that because of this the U.S. leadership immediately thought that whatever you know hit the twin towers uh, might have had a nuclear weapon on it but it, but it didn't go immediately off and so in order to save new york they went ahead with a built-in programmed demolition device a nuclear demolition device which had been planted deep in the cores of the towers uh decades earlier for you know the eventual uh, demolition so that particular story strikes me as completely insane uh, for many reasons, right? I mean, why? Oh, me too. Yeah. But, you know, actually, it's pretty close to what Heinz Palmer and Franz, Francois Roby are saying. They're saying like a pre-planted thing under the ground. and for Well, pre-planted purpose. is one thing, but but then, you know, oh, panic, panicking out. because the yeah. Pentagon was hit with the a... The controlled demolition yeah. of it that they planted before. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 notion really... the notion that something could hit the towers with nuclear bombs on board that wouldn't go off right away, but they might go off later and destroy New York... That's ridiculous. If they're going to destroy New York, they would go off immediately. They wouldn't just sit there in the smoldering, burning towers waiting to go off later. And, and then taking the towers down in a demolition would not necessarily solve that problem. I mean, the whole thing is insane. And I, I mean, when I do my re I mean, as a professional historian and as with a very engineering, very left brain kind of approach to solving problems, I don't trust anybody. <laughs> You know, I use whatever evidence. If it's consistent, I say, well, this is consistent with what I'm coming up with. So maybe this is good. But I don't say, you know, this is the truth or whatever. But together, it makes a pretty powerful story. When you look at all the pieces of evidence, it tends to fall in place. Uh, you know, I said Joe Viles. I don't know who the heck he is, you know, but if his story is very consistent, well, I'm more likely to believe his story than somebody who has the official story or some other story. So, yeah, I don't. I don't say I'm basing my opinion on Joe Viles or Dmitry Kalasov or anybody else. I just look at the evidence. And to me, the most trustworthy evidence that I have to start with is this cratering uh, evidence that I look at. Right. So um, you're, you're, you're watching the official story of the war on terror get cratered by craters. Yeah, that's what you, I'm, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I, I'm at the stage, you know, even though I have like some 40,000 followers I've had for a long time, you know, I, on Twitter. Uh, I don't see that much impact. I mean, I can't really get a good conversation with anybody. <laughs> You're stuff. probably being throttled on Twitter, I would imagine. I, I, that I would believe, but I don't, and I don't know whether you know whether I'll continue to be throttled now. But uh, that uh, I get a lot of 
you know, I got enough action to keep me keep, keep me doing it, but I don't know whether how much spread it actually has or, or, or you know, what good it does. But I, I do it because I, I enjoy doing it. I like you, it. Could, could you put that out sort of in a book form or a web page form or something? It's, I mean, having it in just a form of tweets is, yeah. is kind of strange. Unusual. Yeah. Although I get a lot. I do have a website, the drbairdonline.com, that uh, I, I have a lot of part books. I seem to do this, have this pension for like starting a book about halfway through it, you know, moving on to some new ring, brass ring that looks more interesting to me. But I'm working on a book right now called The Telltale Crater. Uh, and I'm, I think I stick with it because a lot of these things that are on Twitter that I have where I'm looking at these incidents with the explosives that have craters there. But they're, you know, we're talking about dozens and dozens of these things that are out there going back 100 years. Um, I'm, I think that one is the one I will do. I already have three at least a, chapters that I've done on that and I'm, I'm working on another one. And then I got sidelined by, Oh, I got annoyed by everybody talking about false flag, false flag, false flag with Russia and uh, the 1999 bombings and no oh, Russia's fault. And I said, ah, it's gotta be more to it. So, I mean, it really this stuff I did for Russia was just like, you know, a couple of weeks worth of digging, but it was grounded on my understanding of craters. And uh, that gave me the confidence to like, look for, you know, what, you know, what fit that kind of explanation that uh, I was mm -hmm. coming up with based on my creator analysis. But then the next part of it that we still think it was like, how do you finger who did it, which is the hard part. And I generally don't tweet that very much because it's like, OK, now I'm getting into, you know, conjecture. I don't know for sure. A lot of these incidents who did it. But there's a plan, there is a pattern developing, you know, and it started with uh, it started for me with the, the 1983 U.S. Marine barracks bombing that nobody Nobody will touch uh, myself, but it's pretty solid historical research, and it is on Twitter. It'll be an article, a chapter in this book eventually. But I, based on the creator analysis, I started looking for well, who could have done it, and I found so much information, so much evidence pointing the finger at Israel, including the fact that Israel had been the previous occupants of these buildings they had just abandoned mm -hmm. them before the marines moved in there it's like oh they had access control to all this yeah this before. was this was before they completely owned the united states i mean they, they you know they had a yeah. lot of influence oh but... there was a lot of anger at israel oh, yeah of, yeah reagan was not happy with, you know and all his advisors they weren't happy with yeah, israel. which is the which was the reagan advisor who said something like uh, f the jews they don't vote for us anyway I don't know. That was uh, it wasn't James Baker. It was James Baker. Oh, James so, Baker. Okay, yeah, Secretary yeah. of State there. Yeah. yeah. I, I uh, yeah. When you read through the uh, the newspaper, I mean, even sticking with the newspaper, like New York Times, you find a lot of animosity toward Israel. Uh, and then this miracle of miracles. I mean, immediate. Even though I also believe that they were responsible for destruction of the uh, the U.S. embassy in Beirut in April. I haven't really tweeted on that, but. Uh, that one didn't get as much attention in terms of the uh, the, the damage that was done to it. But uh, I found some information that just said, yes, there was a large crater there, plus not just a crater, but there was all kind of damage that just wouldn't be caused by a truck bomb. You, you know, Bruce, I, I'll bet John F. Kennedy is like rolling over in his grave or maybe his brain is rolling over in the jar in the skull and bones or wherever it is, uh, you know, because he was dedicated. He, he, you know, he dedicated the last couple of years of his life to trying 
to stop nuclear proliferation in general and to stop Israel from getting nuclear weapons in particular. So if JFK from the other world is gazing down on planet Earth right now and seeing that the Israelis are getting away with nuking the United States over and over and over, killing hundreds of Marines, blowing up the U.S. Embassy, blowing up the Twin Towers and on and on and on. Um, I think JFK is probably uh, getting a little bit angry. It's like, you know, some people say Jesus is coming back and boy, is he pissed. Well, maybe it'll be JFK coming back and boy, will he be pissed. You know, and I, uh, I, I grew up in New Orleans. I was born and raised in New Orleans and uh, I came of age in the 1960s there reading newspapers, reading the Times Picayune and reading all this strange stuff about Jim Garrison and the investigation. I was like, what the heck are these people? Dave Ferry, oh, weird, no eyebrows. What is this guy? But I remember reading all that and I've always tried to try to make sense of what happened in JFK. But, and I've actually, I have a major research project where I did a lot of oral history of people who were, there knew Lee Harvey Oswald or, you know, or were in the Civil Air Patrol, which is a big part of the story. They have Dave Ferry, you know, and I have all these you know, microphones speaking. I got so I could have these interviews with these people and uh, I haven't done much with it. because I found a lot of weird stuff. But when I read Michael Collins Piper, you know, book, it was like, OK, this 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 is it. This puts it all together, all this weird stuff. So I, I always every November Actually, November 22nd, which happens to be my birthday. I was seven years old when Kennedy was assassinated. So another wow. aspect. That must have been a memorable birthday party. Very, very somber birthday party. But um, every November 22nd, I, I retweet everybody. You should go ahead and read. read go, what's the name of the book? Michael Kahn. I forget what uh, Final Judgment. Final Judgment, yeah. You should read this with all the appendices, too. He has all these other. This is such a rich thing. And. I haven't found much to, you know, question it. I mean, from the New Orleans angle, which he does focus a lot on the uh, garrison type of, you know, investigation. Uh, well, well, Lauren Guyanot has uh, kind of confirmed uh, a lot of Piper's research. I read, and, and I've read his book too. And, uh, you know, and I think, and I would too, everything I know of, and I've researched it a lot. I guess I haven't published or tweeted much about it, but I'd say this is a place to start and it, you know, it doesn't have much traction with other people um, who, you know, other type of conspiracy theories about the JFK. It's pretty much on its own. And I remember what's that when the, when the 50th anniversary, there was just 50 reasons to question the official story. I can't remember who that did. It was like, I, I showed it in my high school history class, uh, 50 reasons. To, and Piper's stuff wasn't in that 50 list, 50 reasons to question the official story. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, I, I came across it late too. I, I was blaming the CIA uh, from when I first discovered the problem in maybe about '74 when I was in high school, uh, right up through I don't know. I guess the late '90s. I think I first heard about Piper, and then uh, I had him on the radio show back nice. in maybe 2006 or seven. And uh, I, I, my respect for him, you know, increased pretty rapidly. And yeah, I think I think he was definitely barking up the right tree. Yeah. And, so, yeah, we, we, ha we kind of have a problem here uh, with, with this, you know, as Thomas Suarez's book puts it, this state of terror, which has so much influence in the United States that somebody like Netanyahu, this master criminal who probably uh, blew up the Twin Towers, killed thousands of Americans, gets uh, a standing ovation in Congress. He, you know, shows up in Congress. And when Obama, the president, tried to talk to Congress, he got a chilly reception from a lot of the Congress critters. 
which is okay with me. But then when Netanyahu went in front of Congress, they all were compelled to leap up and, and give him a standing ovation as standing ovation after standing ovation. 23 within a 40 minutes. I think it was only like a quarter of his thing was actually talking. The rest of it was applause and ovation. Yeah. I, I included that little that's video pathetic. on my, uh, on my thread there. Cause <laughs> it's always, sucking. but the, you know, that's the other part of the story in terms of going after Israel. Israel is, as far as I can tell, the five states, five nuclear states, invented these kind of third generation or they they invented the neutron bomb all five of them admit they invented the neutron bomb but if you invent the neutron bomb you can invent all these other types of third generation nukes including clean nukes and the five were the united states first soviet second israel was third then france and china so all five of them had the ability back in the 80s they did have the ability and they did make these kind of third generation nukes back then who had so it had to be one of those five suspects, but you don't That's have to right, be no, I, and I have no power putting my finger on one of the, So <laughs> when you look at which of the five did it, on this Russian thread, I first had to deal with Russia. Well, could Russia have done it? Russia in 1999. Would they still have this kind of nuke that they were doing with to keep up the United States back in the early 80s and the Soviet Union fall apart and it's all... You know, Bruce, we're going we're to have to leave this as an unsolved mystery, uh, <laughs> such as it right? is. And also, last thing Israel benefited from all of this. Uh, yeah. Russia changed completely with... Israel. Putin became... Everybody hates the Muslims. Time for a war on Islam. Okay, well, thank you so much, Bruce Barrett. It's always You're great talking with you. Uh, God bless. Great work. And I'll hopefully bring you back at some point. All right. Freedom Radio. Freedom Slips.